Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. We are taking this process seriously and diligently, uh, looking at the proposals coming forward, uh, making uh, a case for the proposals we make, and we will uh, continue to engage in a thoughtful, responsible way. So I have a choice. Uh, what do I want to listen to? John Fogarty or Justin Trudeau? Hello, everybody. Another weekend of uh, the Roy Green Show. Day two of our weekend, Sunday edition on this 15th of October. My God, time goes quickly. Stephen Harper warned just a couple of days ago, not to be surprised, if Donald Trump were to end NAFTA. Mr. Trump is laying more hurdles in front of negotiators. By the way, next half hour, we're going to be talking about Donald Trump's week and what's going on in the White House and in the leadership of the GOP when uh, Fran Coombs joins us, the managing editor of Rasmussen. Fran spent a lot of time with us during the election campaign. It's gotten very strange at the White House this last few days. But uh, back to NAFTA, Catherine Swift, economist, working Canadians.ca, former president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and of course, a contributing member of our Beauties and the Beast on Saturdays here on the Roy Green Show. And Catherine, uh, very much involved in, was it 1987 and 88, right? Yeah, the, it was, yeah, it's kind of funny thinking back. It was a long time ago, needless to say. But um, the 1988 federal election, as you may recall, was fought on, this was the key issue, free trade. Now, then it was the FTA, the Free Trade Agreement, U.S. and Canada. It morphed into NAFTA in 1994, a few years later. But it was funny, I had just joined CFIB as the chief economist, and I was suddenly immersed right up to my neck in this hot, hot debate about, you know, should we or shouldn't we go with a free trade agreement? And it was really, uh, it was very lively, as I'm sure you recall, Roy. Um, and, and the funny thing was that the left, who hates anything that smacks even remotely of freedom, was fighting it like mad. All the unions were fighting it. I remember the Council of Canadians. I remember debating all these people in the media ad nauseum. And, and of course, what their line was, was this is just a big corporate thing. It's, you know, it's all about big corporate. And yet, CFIB, a small business organization, we, we polled our members endlessly and found like 90-odd percent of them were supportive of free trade. So we threw a voice into the mix then that was kind of a novel one because we said, no, no, this is by no means just a corporate thing. It's a small business thing, too. And, and that, you know, that had a real interesting role in the debate. Catherine, if you uh, look at the track record of NAFTA, would you say that this country's economy 
the, uh, the the lifestyle, quality of life, the economic factors for Canadians as, as you know individually and as families, has NAFTA improved things for Canada, or would it have made very little difference? Had it not become a fact of life? Uh, unquestionably improved. There have been quite a lot of good studies done over the years that have uh, t- attempted to quantify it, and it's, it's not an easy thing to quantify, but there, there's no question it has improved uh, our economy, um, our, our access to products and whatnot. And one of the key things for Canada, because we have an economy that's got a lot of similarities with the U.S., the Mexican thing, you know, Mexico was really the odd person out in the sense that their economy is so very different from that of the U.S. and Canada. But but in in Canada, um, uh, you know the the the, the benefits uh, were certainly quite significant. And when you look at trade around the world, when you look at trade deals, it's interesting that it's often the smaller countries in the in the mix, which of course we were one of them, that benefit more than the larger countries. And one of the things for Canada, because we were already quite integrated with the U.S. market, one of the really important things, and it is on the table in this NAFTA, is the whole dispute settlement mechanism. We didn't have rules before. It's not perfect. Nothing's ever perfect. But it helped Canada a lot in a lot of our high-profile disputes that we had with the U.S. And, of course, Trump has, you know, has focused on it as something that they might want to do away with going forward, and that would be a huge loss to Canada. Prime Minister Stephen Harper, the former Prime Minister, said, don't be surprised if Donald Trump pulls the United States out of NAFTA, thereby effectively killing NAFTA. I was surprised the former Prime Minister said that at this particular juncture, but uh, would you be surprised if Donald Trump were to say, no, I don't think so, we're done? Well, Donald Trump's an unpredictable cat, as we all know, and I don't know that anything would really surprise me terribly because he, he tends to change his tune on issues 180 degrees from one day to the next sometimes. And, of, of course, the thing I've always laughed about with Trump is people think he's a conservative. No, no, no. Protectionism is a left-wing thing, and he's come across as a big protectionist when it comes to trade issues anyway. So he's certainly not a, a, a conservative in any true sense of that word. I, I kind of was surprised that Stephen Harper... Um, made that comment, though. I mean, I gather he was at some, he was on a panel at some conference or something, so, you know, he wasn't just sort of flapping off at the mouth. But I, I thought, because c- it, it is kind of a, ten, you know, it's a, it's a tenuous time right now for the negotiations, and so I was kind of surprised he would wade in. But I guess, again, if he was part of a panel and it was on this topic, he, you know, he, he had to participate. So last evening I took a look at some of the quotes from Donald Trump or since the uh, renegotiation about NAFTA started taking place and some of the people who were speaking on his behalf and trying to put them together in some sort of logical order, and I couldn't do it. But what I, what I came up with was just the sense that perhaps here's, again, Donald Trump's version of the art of the deal, and he's going to try to make the deal that he can then sell to his base in the United States, and if he can't do it, then he'll just dissolve NAFTA and turn to his base and say, I tried, it didn't work, this is ultimately going to be better for us now because the jobs are going to come home and they won't be going to Canada and they won't be going to Mexico. That's how he'll, that's how he'll position it. I don't think there's any question about that, Roy. But the thing is, he'll be wrong because the NAFTA, the FTA first and then NAFTA have benefited the U.S. very much as well. And the funny thing is, Canada and Mexico aren't the enemy of the U.S. with respect to, if you look at trade balances and stuff, yes, Mexico does have lower labor costs and so on and so forth, but they also have a lesser skilled workforce. There's other mitigating factors in there too. The, the real, the real, 
problem is China in this world of trade right now. And it isn't just because China has lower labor costs and so on. It's because China is a, is a communist, government-run economy, which will pump tons of money into making their products cheaper uh, on the world market and, and therefore doesn't operate in a true, you know, a true prop, proper competitive market. So, I mean, U.S. will be a loser, no question. And industries like the auto industry, I can't get over uh, the, the union, the auto union, who, who is saying it's no big deal. I, I was looking in, the, uh, you know, looking in the news, no big deal if NAFTA goes down. Are they out of their minds? Our, our auto sector is so integrated with both the U.S. and Mexico that it will be unscrambling the omelet if, if we have to suddenly de, you know, untangle ourselves from all of this. So I, I, personally, I think it would be very bad for all three countries if NAFTA went down. But again, I don't think we can predict Trump. And you're right. The, the whole art of the deal is brinkmanship, yep. brinksmanship yep. right from the get-go. Yep. Yep. So nothing can be ruled out. And he has a formula. Oh, oh, no, he does. He has a pattern. First of all, he comes out with some outrageous statements, so everybody freaks out. <laughs> and, of course, what he's trying to do is knock everybody off their, you know, off balance so that he can get an advantage. So how does trade, then, between Canada and the United States proceed if NAFTA disappears? Oh, boy. Well, it would take years and years, like I say, to untangle. It's not just the auto industry. I mentioned that because that's a you know, high-profile right. one. But uh, everybody, small firms, large firms, uh, are so integrated with the U.S. economy. So many Canadian businesses have branches of one kind in the U.S., and of course, vice versa. Um, it will be very long and very painful. And uh, again, I would think any leader of the three countries would be foolish. I mean, sure, maybe some updating needs to be done. Again, from Canada's standpoint, that dispute, the dispute resolution me- mechanism is hugely, hugely important uh, and should be retained as much as possible. Uh, but I, I just I, I would just hope that cooler heads will prevail after all the you know headline grabbing quotes get out of the way and everyone will realize it's in their best interests to stay a unified you know a unified block because again there's trade agreements happening all over the world here and if we break up NAFTA we're going to be weaker in dealing with all of those other trade you know trading nations. Yeah, you and I both know though no matter who says what about NAFTA, no matter whether all the negotiators for all three countries say to the president of the United States, ultimately this is the in the best interest of all three countries and look we've been able to fine tune it and create a reality that's going to benefit everybody. It is still going to be up to Trump yeah. to make the final decision and I really think it's going to be on a whim. Well, I really think it's going to be on a plus. He's been on. He's been saying since day one when he started electioneering, NAFTA's bad. NAFTA's bad. NAFTA's bad. NAFTA's bad. Yep. Now he has to find a reason to say NAFTA's not so bad. Yep. Or, or find some wins that it, something he can view as wins to sell to his base, like you say. Yeah. Yep. That then he can say, well, no, we're keeping it, but we really fixed it up, so it's it's you know working better for us. And who? Which politician wouldn't do that? Well, no, no, well, it's hardly it's hardly a surprising stance. Yeah. But he he is he is playing with fire here, though. Like this isn't just a trivial thing for any of the three economies. But ultimately, you're right, Roy. Was I was back and forth with Twitter uh, with somebody yesterday who was saying, "Oh, Canada and you, Mexico should just tell the U.S. to stuff it." And I said, "You know that that's a nice thought, but the U.S. is the big dog here, and the big dog doesn't." doesn't have to make the concessions. <laughs> you know what you do? You go out in the, uh, on the trees and on the posts around the play, uh, you know, the dog playground, <laughs> yes, and you, you check the highest wet point. And you mark point. your territory, baby. Right? <laughs> the highest wet point tells you who the lead dog is. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening.
listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Catherine Swift, uh, WorkingCanadians.ca, former CEO and president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. We're talking about NAFTA and the future of NAFTA and the future of our economy without NAFTA and where we'd be dealing and how we'd be dealing, who we'd be trading with, because there's still CETA and there's still the TPP, right? I want you to have a listen to, to Justin Trudeau. And, and generally, Catherine, you know, I'm not no big fan of Trudeau's. I think that's I am uh, eminently clear. But uh, his, his crew isn't doing that badly in, in negotiating with the Americans, are they? I guess time will tell. Uh, so far, um, you know, he, he is certainly hanging in and being supportive of NAFTA, which is, you know, a good, obviously, a sensible stance to take. Um, he is not um he's, he's not irritating trump from everything i can see you know he seems to be playing along with trump and let's face it as you said earlier right, tr- trump is the big de- <laughs> deciding force in this whole That's in this right. whole thing anyway he's so, the big dog so, in the park so far, yeah the big dog so so far so far so good but again we've yet to see okay. you know we, we know that there's trouble in paradise right now though we do know that there's a lot of, you know, we haven't reached agreement on an awful lot of things. So right. the big, the big uh, parts are yet to come. So there, folks, is a diplomatic answer to my question. <laughs> here's a little, here's about 10 seconds of what Mr. Trudeau said the other day. We are very aware uh, that there are other potential paths out there, and we will address them when we, uh, as they arise, uh, with uh, the knowledge that they are certainly out there. <laughs> That's really definitive, eh? <laughs> Mind you, you know, again, I don't, I'm not a fan of Trudeau's either. I don't like what they're doing to spend our money or our country into the ground or whatever. But, you know, he has no choice but to say stuff like that, in my view. You know? The baffle yeah. gab. Yeah. Uh, you didn't catch what I caught. So that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to play it again. So what happens then to TPP and CETA? How, do we then have... Is TPP going to turn out to be, without the United States, is going to be turned out to be something really, truly viable? And uh, without the UK in Europe, is CETA still a good deal for us? Totally. CETA is a very good deal for Canada in many, many ways. Um, it's, it's, the U.S. is always the big influence on Canada, we, it, by geography, by integration with our economy. But right. CETA is a, you know, Europe is a huge, huge market as well. So um, it, I, I'm a free trader. Uh, you know, like I said, I look at the evidence from the economic standpoint. It is in favor of free trade. So uh, these other agreements are, are, are all good for Canada, but the big one is NAFTA, and it's going to be that way forever. And Catherine, really, you know, they can stop NAFTA, but they can't stop free trade at this point. No. Oh, no, 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 no. And, and also, you know, the, the thing of the, the protectionist stuff that makes me crazy, and the unions spout it, and Trump is spouting it, is that the consumers, we're all consumers, and there's no question certain groups are hurt by more open trading arrangements. There's no doubt about that. Not, nothing's ever going to be universally positive anyway. Like, you know, let's be realistic here. But consumers get so much more access to better goods and services, cheaper goods and services, and so on, when you have an internationally competitive okay. market. And, you know, for Trump to say, oh, we're just going to close the borders, which he hasn't exactly said, but something along those lines, is just basically saying to American consumers, by the way, we're going to crank up your costs by a, you know, by a very significant factor, your cost of living. And, and that's just foolishness. All right, so what I would do is I would send Catherine Swift to negotiate personally one-on-one with Donald Trump. I know we'd be, I know we'd be just fine. 
just fine. I'd have to take my baseball bat, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk to you next Saturday, Catherine. Thanks We're for the time today. Roy. Okay, bye-bye. Catherine Swift. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Did you undercut the Secretary of State today with the IQ comment? No, I didn't undercut anybody. I don't believe in undercutting people. Thank you very much, everybody. You still have confidence in Thank you. Yes. The President of the United States won Donald Trump on undercutting his Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson. It all started when there was talk about Mr. Tillerson having called Mr. Trump an effing moron. And uh, that got reported and it was commented on by well, was about everybody. And then Donald Trump tweeted that he would be happy to enter an IQ competition with his Secretary of State where what Mr. Trump said would be the predictable result. So I've just been watching all of this going on. Bob Corker, the senator from Tennessee, who was a reasonably early supporter of Donald Trump, saying that uh, the White House is a daycare and would be in total chaos without adult supervision, and the adult supervision, of course, would be the... uh, the main players around Donald Trump. I'm trying to figure out what's going on there. Is it totally out of control? Is it partly out of control? Is it totally under control? Are they doing, is it, there's a lot of manipulation taking place of people who are easily manipulated? Sally Quinn was with us yesterday from uh, uh, formerly the Washington Post. And um, she painted an interesting picture of of the White House. You can go back and listen anytime. Just go to uh, the Roy Green Show page on any of the Chorus Radio Station's websites, uh, stations that carry this program, and you can listen back and you can download. With me now is Fran Coombs, Managing Editor of Rasmussen Reports, and uh, Fran was with us uh, almost every weekend leading up to the election for about seven or eight months until the November vote last year. And uh, always really appreciate your insights, Frank. And you under, uh, Fran, you understand Washington far better than most, having been the editor of the Washington Times for, for many years. Was it just an unusual week in Washington or not that unusual? I, I can't recall the last time a president and a secretary of state got into a, who's, who's the smarter publicly, who's the smarter between us? Right. Well, it's... Uh... <laughs> It's hard to say. With Trump, everybody breathlessly wants to say, "Oh, it's it's we've never seen this before." And but I mean, look, there's been political divisiveness as long as as long as a man's been on the planet. Um, I just think that Trump Trump Trump's a tough boss. I mean, we did the same. He did the same thing with Jeff Sessions. He wanted him to step up. Um, he he wanted Tillerson to step up. And I think uh, in the age of tweeting and all that, uh, that. Perhaps the best way to get your people to step up is just to make it publicly clear, hey, I don't like the job you're doing. Get tough. So how does this affect... People may disagree with that, but, uh, you know, that's his tool. Yeah. How does this affect Rex Tillerson doing his job? And at what point does a man like Tillerson, who is the CEO of um, uh, Exxon, how, how do... He's a very powerful, very wealthy man in his own right. At what point does somebody like Tillerson say, stuff it? And the word is that that's what he was about to do, and then Mike Pence talked him out of it. 
Well, again, nobody knows that. I mean, that's that's been reported in the media. I mean, I don't know anybody in America these days who believes anything they see in the media. Um, so we don't know whether that's true or not. I mean, yes, we know that uh, Tillerson's a tough guy, a very successful businessman, very wealthy man, but he's still there. He's still there, and, in fact, he's come out and been very supportive of Trump in the last few days. Uh, so uh, apparently... He's still uh, he's still satisfied with the job he's got and still willing to do the job and he's still on the job. What about Bob Corker? How does that all fit into the equation, Fran? You know, Bob Corker is a sad sack. Uh, I mean, if you look at his numbers in Tennessee, uh, he was going to have a very diff- difficult time getting reelected anyway. Uh, and unfortunately, I think for a lot of voters, certainly a lot of Republicans, um, these the guys, the Republicans in the Senate, are a real disappointment. Uh, and Corker's one of them. I mean, these are these are guys who talk tough the whole time Obama was in the office, and then as soon as they got a Republican president, uh, they couldn't agree on anything. And, uh, I mean, Trump, as you know, Trump's been very critical of the, of the Senate Republicans, and a lot of Republicans have been very critical of them. Uh, our polling has shown, Roy, repeatedly uh, that Republican voters, you know, two-thirds of Republican voters, uh, think their representatives in Washington are out of step with the party base. Uh, so p- folks are not happy with Bob Corker and company. So how does this then, if, if you look at uh, all the reports that have been out there this week, uh, the, the Tillerson and the uh, and the, and the uh, Trump story, the, the Bob Corker allegations that the White House is, is a, a daycare organization, the suggestions that there would be uh, total chaos if it weren't being run really by the generals, uh, who are uh, assisting Trump? How is all of that playing with the with the general American public are they hearing any of that, or is it only Democrats and Trump haters who are hearing that? Well, I mean, Trump's numbers stay the same. He's in the low to mid forties, approval wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think Trump's supporters hear it at all. And after all, who 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 named the generals to their top jobs, and who got a lot of criticism for putting military men in those top jobs? Donald Trump. And now all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it's like, oh well, thank goodness the generals are there. Well, that's not the way the media felt three, four, five months ago. Um, so I think, look, uh, Trump, uh, Trump. This is this is a climate. I think a political climate that none of us have ever seen before mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the media. The media has completely thrown away any kind of uh, interest in trying to be balanced and credible. Um, a lot of people would say that that has to do with the fact that there are not a lot of older journalists in the mix anymore. You got a lot of young kids now who are who, who make up the Washington press corps. And um, so, who knows what to believe, and who knows uh, who knows if Trump is doing something that others haven't done before? Um, who knows if the reports we're hearing about Tillerson are accurate? I mean, we we heard numerous stories about how Pence was trying to start his own campaign and distance himself uh, from Trump. None of that. Uh, nobody has been able to document that or prove that in any way, shape, or form. Uh, we hear stories about Trump all of the time, and two weeks later you don't hear the stories anymore, and they're on to something else. So who knows? You know, I keep going back. When, when I hear a story about Donald Trump that to me sounds either it's going to be so spectacular that it's going to be unbearingly interesting. Uh, I don't know if that actually works together, unbearingly interesting, but I used it. Uh, if I hear something like that or read something like that, I always go back to one of the first incidents that took place after he became president and was in the Oval Office. And that was the reporter who wrote the piece, I think it was, was it Reuters, that, oh, Donald Trump moved into the Oval Office, and the first thing he did was take away Martin Luther King's bust. 
Yeah, that was that was Newsweek, and it turned out Newsweek. that there was a guy standing in front of the bus. Yeah, well, the door was blocking it or something like that. Yeah, well, and in the old days, that would have been basically a firing offense. And I don't—I mean, I never heard that anything ever happened to that reporter at all. I'm not even no. sure that that reporter had to apologize. No, I don't think so. I, so, I don't—I uh, doubt it. So, yeah, but but look, when, when you talk about the, the the parties, the political parties, now. And you talk about, uh, you know, the GOP being unhappy with the other parts of the GOP. The last time I remember a party struggling with its president or struggling with its own component parts when it spilled into the open was when Bill Clinton had that affair with Monica Lewinsky. And it all depends on the meaning of the word is, what the meaning of the word is, is. Um, the the Democrats were so wobbly at that time. Is there any kind of that wobbliness in the in the in the GOP, uh, or is it a are the, the ranks reasonably solid when it comes to you know stepping well, forward and making a public stance? They're not going to impeach him because he hasn't done anything impeachable. You can't just impeach. No, him. I've heard I've heard I heard impeached. I think the, before he even took office. Yeah, I mean, see, but you ha- he has to do something. You can't just impeach a president because you don't like him. Mm-hmm. But look, Roy, you know, here's history. Bill Clinton got elected in 1992. Two years later, Newt Gingrich and the Republican Revolution came in and took over the Congress for the first time in over 20 years. Mm-hmm. The Republicans took over the House, okay? That was two years into Bill Clinton's Democratic presidency when the Democrats had complete control of Congress for two years. The end result was the American people sent them packing. Okay, under Obama, okay, all you didn't, the media didn't report it like they report on Trump. But look what happened under Obama. The National Democratic Party has been basically, was basically destroyed during Obama's eight years in office. They lost both chambers uh, of, the, of our national legislature. They've lost numerous governorships. They're at like the lowest level of governorships and state legislators that they've been since before FDR, I believe. So Barack Obama was just like a holocaust on the National Democratic Party, but you never hear that from the national media because they weren't all over Obama. Oh, look, Another uh, election's been lost because of Obama's policies. Oh, look, another governorship's been lost because of Obama's policies. Mm-hmm. So I think the real test of the Republican Party and the voters is going to be, let's see the midterm elections. Let's see. That's the real poll. Yeah, yeah. And and t- remind us here in Canada, when it comes to those midterms, how how much of a shift can there be? Do you, is it possible for there to be in the Congress or the, uh, or, or the Senate? Just what, numerically, what could happen? Well, basically all the members of the House of Representatives are up every two years. So basically you have the entire House being voted on. But generally incumbents win. The Democrats would have to pick up something like 30 seats or more to take control of the House. That is highly unlikely to happen. The Senate, a third of the Senate is up, and the Senate is, but there's many more Democrats at risk in, in, in at-risk states in this upcoming election cycle than there are Republicans. So everyone expects Republicans to pick up, at a minimum, a seat or two in the Senate, but they possibly could do much better than that. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Fran Coombs, managing editor of Rasmussen Reports, is with us, and we're talking about the uh, the week that was in the White House and beyond. One of the things that's going on, Fran, of course, is the negotiations over NAFTA. And the question is, will President Trump uh, believe enough in NAFTA, see enough potential in NAFTA to want to retain it as far as he, as long as he gets what he wants in the negotiations? Or will it be a situation where he says, nope, don't want it, it's gone. If, if you were to t- toss a coin in the air, uh, 
Uh, what does it come down uh, on, Fran? Does it come down on NAFTA survives or not? Let me push this. Let me click this thing here. Sorry, Fran, go ahead. I would say yes. I think uh, NAFTA survives, but I think the, our negotiating partners have to be realistic. I mean, I think they, everyone knows Trump enough to know, uh, well enough to know, that he will walk away from NAFTA in a heartbeat if he doesn't think he, he's getting a better deal. I mean, he walked away from the Paris Accords. Uh, he ended this week by killing the subsidies for Obamacare. Uh, he's walking away from the Iran deal. Uh, this is a guy who is not afraid to fly into the face of the uh, of the powers that be in the media and do things. So I would say NAFTA survives, but I think our negotiating partners need to be realistic when they go to the table, too. All right. So uh, we'll, we'll know very short, shortly as far as that is concerned. And uh, talking about economic matters, I saw something um, from Rasmussen that I found very interesting, and that was as far as the success is concerned of the economy, the American economy, during the tenure of Donald Trump, Americans give Obama as much credit as they give Donald Trump for that. What's that about? Well, I think you can imagine which voters say which, Roy. Uh, But yes, basically we ask the question, the improving economy, is it due more to Trump or is it due more to policies that Obama implemented before he left office? And basically it was was even. 45% said Trump deserves credit. 45% say Obama's policies deserve credit. And... um, but as you can well imagine, Democrats overwhelmingly credited uh, uh, Obama and Republicans overwhelmingly credited Trump. Um, we are also seeing, I think we're seeing an interesting shift in, in un- so-called unaffiliated voters. Uh, I, think, I think unaffiliated voters in our surveys more and more, um, de- that more and more Democrats are starting to identify as unaffiliated. Uh, and I think that's indicative of, I don't have any, I can't prove that, but when I see a lot of our surveys, I'm seeing big, we're seeing big changes in some of the traditional questions um, that we changes we haven't seen before. And I'm thinking that there's a lot of unhappiness, a lot of unreported unhappiness in the Democratic Party, and that a lot of Democrats, particularly young Democrats, are not identifying with the party as much. They are saying we are independents, although they still lean Democrat, obviously, in their ideology. Now, one more question for you. Do you expect that Barack Obama is going to be heard from more as Mr. Trump continues to dis- dismantle uh, Obama's heritage? I mean, they've, they've just bought a condo in Manhattan. They have a house in Washington. Do you expect to hear more from Barack Obama? Yeah, I do, Roy, but I don't know if that's going to do the Democrats any good. I mean, I think the younger, ambitious men and women in the Democratic Party have to be very frustrated that they can't get rid of the the older generation, if you will. I Nancy mean, Pelosi. Yeah, Schumer. Pelosi, Schumer, uh, Bernie, and certainly Bernie. Hillary Clinton. Bernie. Yeah, what's, I didn't think Bernie would hang in this long. I didn't think he'd have the staying power, but apparently, uh, on the left, he sure does. Right. Well, as you know, the so-called resistance, I mean, these folks are opposed to anything that Trump will do, and yeah. he... Uh, I think he represents that better than any leading Democrat. Sure, the socialist who has three beautiful homes on the lake and drives limousines. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And who's never had a job in his life. Never had a job in his life. On the taxpayers' dime. I knew Bernie's uh, legacy, political legacy in Vermont pretty well. I didn't live too far from Burlington, Vermont, for quite a few years. Okay, so you know that you know the man. I, I, know, I know of the man. I haven't met him personally, but I know stories that are told about him. Fran, thank you so much. It's always great speaking with you. Okay, a pleasure talking to you too, Roy. Take care. Take care. Fran Coombs, Managing Editor of Rasmussen Reports, on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. 
You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I was looking at a news report from 2002, September 2002. It was a report, a column written by Diane Francis for the National Post. And she begins this way. Ralph Klein is warning Ottawa to, quote, to, quote, not push us, end quote, on the issue of the Kyoto Protocol, or it will face another separatist threat from Alberta. Quote, I don't think Albertans are ready to leave Canada, the province's premier said in an interview on the weekend. Again, quoting Mr. Klein, I hope that the government will come to its senses and will explore all of our constitutional options. Before that, separation is even considered. If you ask Albertans now if they want to leave, they would say no. But don't push us too hard. That was 15 years ago. 15 years ago. Uh, I just read a, a column by John Zogby, and I follow what Mr. Zogby writes. He's one of the world's uh, most respected pollsters, and uh, his John Zogby strategies is his firm. And the column that I read was, Is Catalonia a Sign of Our Times? And, of course, we know that in Catalonia, the people have decided in a referendum that Madrid says is invalid, that uh, by 90%, they said, the Catalonians have said, we want out of Spain. Now, the Spanish government has given the Catalonian leaders until Thursday, I think, to come up with a definitive answer. Are you staying or are you going? And if they say they're going, then Madrid is hedging its bets as to what it may do. And we'll have to hold our breath as to what may happen because that could have an impact on all of Europe and beyond Europe. John Zogby joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. There's a very uh, fractious, the potential for, well, it is fractious, isn't it, John, but it has the potential to become a really, really serious situation in Europe. Yeah, it does, because you have another, uh, you have a whole bunch of cross-currents the that are taking place. You have the, the nationalist movements in France and, and Germany and Austria beyond. You have Brexit as well. Um, you have you alluded to potential issues um, in, in Canada as, as there are in the United States with Texas, California, New Hampshire, and then in the Amazon in Brazil. And all of these, you know, have the, the potential of exploding at at some point you know i noted um in the 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 opinion piece that you read by by uh, miss francis don't push us too far um and for many people for a variety of reasons uh, there's a sense that things have been pushed too far um i i should also note just getting back to catalonia this has uh, this this has been an ongoing simmering thing uh, for uh, for decades in in Catalonia, and with the economy the way it is, uh, youth unemployment the way it is, uh, Barcelona, the financial capital of of Spain, um, this has huge repercussions if they do decide to leave. The voters have. It's now uh, you know a, a, a question of the logistics, like Brexit. If they decide to actually go through with that, uh, this is a this is a wretched mess. Mm-hmm. And it sounds as though 
there's a threat coming from Madrid that if you decide you're going, well, all our options are on the table. And, of course, one of the first things we think about is a military reaction, which will be a total disaster. Total disaster. Uh, number one, it's played out on TV these days, you know, and, and that's a, t- a terrible thing to watch. But secondly, uh, Catalonia is the, um, it's organic to, to modern Spain. I mean, it's the financial uh, capital. It's heavily populated. It's the second largest province. Uh, we're talking about a tourism disaster, let alone a, a fiscal disaster. And then, then what happens? You, you know, trade, customs, currency. Um, oh. <laughs> and yet, I'm and, just a pollster, but yeah. man, this is breathtaking. And yet, on your in your in your column, or at least the headline of your piece is is Catalonia. The sign of our times, and then you look, uh, and, and you mention a poll that yes. uh, John Zogby's strategies conducted in the United States, and your federal government did not come out very well uh, in the opinions of most Americans. No, twenty-five percent said that they had faith in the federal government. That's terrible. Um, and you know, this is one of those things: the union uh, that you know, several hundred thousand Americans died for 160 years ago. Um, uh, but the Union is, is sacrosanct, and the Constitution is sacrosanct. These sorts of things have been inviolable. We, we have had um, separationists. We have had radicalism in the United States before. Um, but it's at a point now where serious folks are talking about it, and just by way of implications, I mean, California and Texas are the two largest states mm-hmm. uh, in in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, uh, in, in California, in particular, in, in, in Texas, you know, there are uh, there are racial overtones and and uh, anti-federal government overtones. But in California, you now have liberals many of whom who do not like the fact that Donald Trump was elected, joining with, um, with ultra-conservatives um, in, a, in the discussion on behalf of, of secession. You know, and anybody who thinks that a country as powerful as the United States is couldn't possibly break up, think mm-hmm. about the USSR. Mm-hmm. They dissolved from within. They dissolved from from within. They had a lot of pressure, but they dissolved from within. Yeah, and and in the United States, uh, look, anything is on the table. I mean, some folks may want to wish it to go away, but the fractiousness—the word that you used the, at the, the beginning of this interview—is there. I mean, like Canada, we have had competing cultures, not just political cultures, but social cultures as well. Um, but there was always a sense of loyalty to the union, and now, for a variety of reasons, you're not hearing that anymore. So is this world, then, poised for a dissolution, or many dissolutions of what we've taken really for granted as being institutions and borders that would last forever? It's an era of tremendous disruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, on a number of fronts. It's not simply government and politics. It's a number of, of familiar institutions where it's not just simply a question of some folks 
not liking it or even uh, rejecting the the institution as it presently exists. It's at a point right now where the level of distrust is the highest that we've ever seen, and consistently so. It's actually growing. It's coming from left and right, as as I pointed out, and it's among the people who feel over decades now to have been victims of the existing system. You know, when we step back and we look at uh, America's racial problem, its its immigration issue, um, the the income inequality, uh, a white middle class that feels as if uh, its government has passed them by. There are a number of fronts here. Uh, it is a period of disruption, and frankly, I don't know where it's going to end up. But as an historian, it, it reminds me of that long period when feudalism dissolved and ultimately was replaced by capitalism and by nation states and, and so on. The problem now, Roy, is we're watching this all in real time. Yes. And it's, it's not taking hundreds of years. This is moving pretty rapidly. Yes, it is. From disruption to chaos for the moment. You know, my, uh, my analogy would be uh, when there's a, a, um, a hurricane mm-hmm. steaming toward, usually it's toward the United States after it's crushed through the Caribbean, and the forecasters say, well, it could go there, mm-hmm. or it might go there, but the odds are it's going to go over here. In other words, nobody really knows. And that's how I see our world today. Nobody really knows. It's like the pilot light is burning to start off a chaotic reality anywhere. It might be Catalonia and, and, and Madrid, so Barcelona and Madrid. But it could be anything else. In France, it could be the Bretons who would then, if, if Catalonia goes, you know that the Bretons are going to really push to get out of France. This yeah. whole thing could get really out of hand. It could, and you're absolutely right. We don't know, but we can't deny. No. And I think that's the important yeah. thing yeah. for anyone to say, well, it's, it's really not going to happen. We honestly don't know. We don't what's know. Next. Great column, uh, great opinion piece, Thank John. You. Always enjoy Always reading your pieces. You. Thank you so much. Thanks, Roy. Take care. Bye bye. John Zogby, uh, John Zogby Strategies. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Five minutes. Don't ruin your friendship with me for five minutes. It's, I know, but it's kind of like it's too much for me. I can't. That was the voice of Harvey Weinstein. I'd call him a pig, but it would be unfair to pigs. It's Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Harvey Weinstein. Sexual harassment, accusation of rape. And now he's uh, tossed out of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences. Tossed out of his um, leadership of his firm, Miramax. And most, the most importantly, and I think most satisfyingly, his wife left him. Instead of being uh, the, the predictable trophy who, as has happened so frequently, women standing by these guys uh, when they have a news conference. Now, she said, I'm out of here. Good for her. 
We're joined by Gloria Allred, civil rights and criminal lawyer from Los Angeles. Uh, her client uh, accuses Weinstein of sexual harassment as well. Ms. Allred, uh, I want to ask you about your client. I want to ask you a lot of questions, but most fundamentally is, did nobody know? Did nobody suspect? How could this go on for so long, and nobody said anything about this man? How, do, how does that happen? Well, thank you for inviting me once again to appear on your show, Roy. I appreciate it. Uh, by the way, I'm not a criminal lawyer. I am uh, a sexual harassment and employment lawyer. Uh, we also do civil rape, uh, civil child sexual abuse cases, and many other cases uh, on behalf of victims. Okay. Uh, in answer, so we don't represent defendants accused of crime or uh, accused of sexual harassment. Having said that, to answer your question, what took so long? Why didn't anybody say something earlier? There are many reasons for that. Uh, many, and I have many, many victims or persons who allege that they were victims contacting me now from all over the world, and uh, I might in, I might add, including from Canada. Uh, but all over the world, uh, to understand what their legal rights may be, if any. Uh, having said that, many people who alleged that they were sexually harassed by Mr. Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein, uh, indicate that they feared retaliation if they spoke out. In other words, that they would never work again because he was so powerful in this town, namely Hollywood and the entertainment business. And they were powerless compared to him. There was a power differential. Uh, so uh, they feared that either they wouldn't work again or that there would be victim shaming, victim blaming, or that nobody would believe them or attribute motives to them that they didn't have and that were inaccurate, um, that sometimes they had not told their family or friends and didn't wish them to know what happened. Uh, sometimes they felt ashamed and thought maybe something they had done had caused it, which, uh, you know, I try to assure persons who allege that they are victims it's not their fault. So it's complex. There's no one reason that fits all. But uh, there are, you know, many, many uh, reasons that vic alleged victims don't speak up, and they have a right not to. They're not required to. Now, there's also uh, those who uh, reportedly entered into confidential settlements. Uh, in other words, there are reports that there were eight confidential settlements, Roy, by women who alleged that they had been sexually harassed by Mr. Weinstein. Part of that settlement would be that they could not speak about it. And that is, sometime, that is often the case where there's a settlement with a high-profile figure, where as part of the terms and conditions of the settlement, uh, they do receive, uh, you know, uh, they do receive financial outcome, which helps them with their perhaps therapy bills, medical bills, compensate them for their pain and suffering. But there is a confidential agree. There's an agreement in the settlement that uh, neither party will disclose the terms of the conditions of the settlement. Often that they can't even discuss the facts of the settlement. Uh, so. That's why you wouldn't have heard about any of that, even if, and sometimes this is the case, persons who allege that they are victims wish to be able to speak about it. They are prevented and prohibited from doing that because of the agreement that they entered into in reference to the confidential settlement. 
By the way, it's very common in Hollywood, and frankly, I do confidential settlements with many high-profile figures on behalf of you know, women who allege that they have been victimized by some injustice inflicted on them by the high-profile figure. We do that frequently against some of the biggest names in the world, and there's no lawsuit then that is ever filed. This is done before a lawsuit. So again, that's a partial answer to your question, why didn't we know about it? Because if there's a settlement, there's no lawsuit filed. A lawsuit would be a public record, but you'll never, there'll never be a lawsuit filed because it was, it was settled pre-lawsuit, uh, and uh, and there was no need to file a lawsuit because the case settled. Okay, I understand that part, and um, but I also know or I suspect that somebody like Weinstein would be bragging to the boys, to his inner circle of buddies. At some point, he's going to brag, I would guess. Uh, and if there were men who would have known what was going on. They were silent, too. Well... You know, I, I don't know what the facts are. I don't know if he bragged. I don't know who to whom he said it, what he said, um, and when he said it. I don't have that information uh, at this point. So uh, I know that's a guess on your part. It might be a very good guess, and you might be right. But on the other hand, you might be wrong. So I really I don't have any information to answer no, that question. Fair enough. What are the legal options now? You're representing uh, at least one client. You have other women contacting oh. you. I'm sorry? Yes. Oh, you, uh, Yeah. Louisette, uh, with whom we did the press conference right. earlier this week. Right. Um, but uh, I have been on the telephone uh, and still am, except with you and lots of other things that are happening in the news that we're involved with, um, with the, you know persons who allege that they were sexually harassed by Mr. Weinstein, who were seeking representation all day and then last night and earlier on Saturday and then on Friday. I mean, we are you know, working to uh, return the calls, because each individual who alleges she was sexually harassed needs, you know, their case needs to be evaluated. It all has to be done one by one, because the facts may be different, where it occurred, when it occurred, how it occurred. There are statute of limitations, that is, arbitrary time periods set by law, during which they must file a claim or be forever barred from filing a claim. Then there are issues of going to the police or not going to law enforcement. We know there are active investigations in London and New York um, and maybe in other places. Uh, So what we do is we need to, uh, you know, discuss it with each individual and see what they're comfortable with doing or not doing, risks versus benefits, uh, what options they have, uh, and where it occurred. Because the statute of limitations, Roy, is different. It's different in every state. It's different in, in, in many different countries, and now we're dealing with, you know, allegations of, of uh, you know, alleged sexual harassment that, that occurred in many places, different places in the world. So um, we're doing this. All calls are confidential. It doesn't go anywhere. We just talk with them, and then they see what they want to do. But I will just say, at this point, we are representing numerous women who allege they are victims of sexual harassment, because we're representing them doesn't mean they need to speak out publicly. Indeed, many of them do not wish to have their names made public, do not wish to say anything publicly, um, and that is not a requirement. Uh, you know, we're looking for justice for victims mm-hmm. or persons who can, you know, have evidence that they're victims. And by the way, a woman's word is evidence. Maybe more will be required, but it certainly is evidence. It must not be ignored or discounted. 
Um, and, uh, and so that's what we're doing. We're fielding all these confidential calls. We're, you know, we're agreeing to be retained by certain individuals and others we are not going to be willing to help, but we want to listen to everyone and evaluate what we can do to assist them if we can. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Gloria Allred is my guest. Uh, Fight Back and Win is her book, one of the most famous lawyers in the world. Ms. Allred, you don't have to answer this question, but I have to ask it. Are you disturbed that your daughter is handling Mr. Weinstein's case? Uh, well, she's actually resigned. Oh, she has. Yes. Okay, I just I just punched it up on the on the no, that uh, online. Was last Saturday. That was last week. Oh, okay, yeah. so they didn't update it. I'm well. It was an interesting uh, development. It, 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 you'll see it all over the internet, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because the story that popped up was that she was re- uh, representing him. Anyway, good. So, is there is there any connection? Uh, between the Weinstein case and Bill Cosby, I see the similarities, but is there uh, is there something more direct, more more connective between the, the the these these cases? Well, I mean, the fact that women have become empowered and are speaking out publicly, yeah. that they continue to refuse to suffer in silence. That they are, you know, for many of these women, uh, both in the Cosby case, persons who allege they are victims, and in the Weinstein case, uh, you know, many women just, you know, took their rage at what happened or what they say happened and, you know, pushed it down deeply inside of themselves uh, and then didn't speak about it. In some cases, they told their friends or their family members but didn't tell anybody else. In some cases, they never told anybody at all. And then, finally, women began to speak out, and then more and more and more and more. And um, who knows how high the number will go in reference to accusers of Mr. Weinstein. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, the old expression, the genie is out of the bottle and mm-hmm. it's never going to be put back in again, in reference to both of these uh, accused men. And so that's what happens is women have become empowered. They're going to be silent no more. Is there any suggestion that there might have been uh, more than just Mr. Weinstein involved, that there might have been uh, you know, more than one man involved? I've heard these rumors as well. Has anybody suggested anything like that to you? Well, you mean to assist Mr. Weinstein? Yeah. Is that your question? No, what, to be part of his dirty little game. Oh, um you know, I, 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 I really can't comment on whether anyone else was involved or not, just simply because anything I would know or would be known through attorney-client privileged confidential communications, and therefore I can't disclose them, won't disclose them, so I, I would say no comment. Don't take that as, as, an, as a yes answer to your question or a no answer. I just have no comment. Okay. Uh, I would imagine, though, that there are more very powerful men who are feeling quite nervous right now. Uh, this... And well, they should. And well, they should. Because many of them cause... have committed acts of sexual harassment. Because I wanted to mention to you, we have uh, three really distinguished women who participate on this program on Saturday afternoons. We call it Beauties and the Beast, and we talk about major issues that are developing. And they're very energetic and very direct, very forthright, unafraid to to uh, 
to, to make their points, state their opinions. And we talked about uh, Weinstein somewhat yesterday, and they all three said, now, wait a minute, this happens to so many women in so many different scenarios. There are so many Harvey Weinsteins out there, you wouldn't believe it. Well, I would believe it, and I'm sure you do believe it. I do believe it, yeah. Nature of your coverage, your excellent coverage of, you know, some of these horrendous scandals. And, and, and let me just say, I have received many, many emails and calls this week about other A-list, well-known people in Hollywood who allegedly have also commit, committed acts of sexual misconduct against women. And I, just very famous names. And so we're screening those calls, too. But right now we're not, you know, not going to comment on them, And but we have to evaluate them in the same way we evaluate, you know, what the evidence might be against Mr. Weinstein. But look, this is about our, somebody's daughter. This is about yeah. somebody's mother. This is about somebody's sister yes. who is trying to uh, obtain an employment opportunity with my client, Louisette Geis. You know, he asked her to pitch his, her screenplay to him. And that's what she did. And she was excited to have that opportunity. It was an incredible opportunity to be able to pitch a screenplay to Harvey Weinstein. And in a million years, she never expected that he would do what she alleged that he did do. What is she saying? So, pardon me? What is she saying he did? Yeah, well, she is saying that, you know, she met him at uh, the Cannes Film Festival. And by the way, everybody can go to com and then click on videos and statements, and they will see the video of our press conference this week in which she made these allegations um, and also see her statement in full. But having said that, uh, she they just said essentially hello uh, at the Cannes Film Festival. And then the next time that she saw him was at Sundance Film Festival, uh, in in Utah, that's where that she alleges that uh, they were staying at the same hotel and saw each other at the Sundance Film Festival, and he then you know asked her if she would like to pitch her screenplay to him, and of course, who wouldn't at that point uh, want to do that? So he they then uh, she had heard rumors uh, about him, right? Uh, so she asked him, according to her to promise that he wouldn't touch her and to, and to swear that he wouldn't touch her and do that in front of a, of a camera, a security camera in, in the lobby in the hotel. He laughed and he did it. Uh, they went to the restaurant. They, um, he, she started to pitch the story, the screenplay, and, at, and then the restaurant was closing and they had to leave. So then he said, uh, you know, according to her, that I'd like to uh, have you come up and continue talking about this in my office. That's when she asked him to say what she said, I think, at, in front of the screen, in front of the security camera. Uh, anyway, so she went up there, and uh, then she alleges that what happened to her happened, and, you know, the allegation by her is that, uh, you know, that he uh, went to the bathroom, excused himself and went to the bathroom, and then when he came out, uh, she said at the press conference that he was bucked naked mm. and that um, essentially he wanted her to uh, watch him masturbate um, which of course 
that's not something that she yeah. would be yeah. interested in doing. Miss Alfred, anyway, at some point she got out of there. Yeah. She was frightened. She was able to get out, and um, and that's uh, what happened to her. Okay, I have to stop here. You know how it works. You're on radio a long time. Yes. Uh, so thank you so much for the time. GloriaAllred.com. Thank you so much. Thanks. Have All the best. Day, Roy. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Oh, we've uh, spoken uh, a great deal about the issue of pain, chronic pain, and chronic pain patients. And uh, chronic pain patients who are having their opioid medications denied them by, by doctors who have said that they're terrified of their colleges, their medical colleges, who are threatening their medical licenses. And patients who have told us about family members who have committed suicide. There's a whole different side to this issue as well. And, uh, and we really only have touched on this in a, in a, in a minor way uh, until today. And that is what is happening to young people, to kids in this country, who find themselves addicted to drugs and uh, take those drugs and either it changes their lives or it ends their lives. And uh, in, the, in, the, in the case of Nick Cody, 18 years of age, it ended his life. I just want to read you a few lines from uh, One Pill Change in Nick's Life. Nick was a son, Nick was a brother, Nick was a friend, and Nick was a defender. Nick Cody was someone who loved life so much that he'd proclaim he wanted to live forever. He was kind-hearted, brave, adventurous, always the first to help someone in need, and simply hilarious. He was the first to snowboard down the toughest hill, and he was the one who got everyone laughing at the dinner table and classroom. Growing up, Nick always hated drugs, but that was not enough to stop them from taking his life. Nick suffered from a problem with drugs, and ultimately, this disease took everything away from Nick, and ultimately took Nick away from everyone who loved him. Nick would be so proud to have this proposed bill in his name, the education and awareness Nick's law can bring, and knowing the impact it could have in helping others like him. Lisa McLeod is a conservative MPP in the province of Ontario, and she's proposing Nick's law. And joining me on the program is Nick's father, Steve Cody. Hi, Steve. Hi, how are you? Good, sir. How are you doing? Oh, very good, thank you. Condolences on the loss of your son. Thank you very much. Also with us is uh, Sean O'Leary. He's the executive director of WeTheParents.ca. WeTheParents.ca. Sean, thank you very much for joining us. I don't know your story, but I suspect you're also a parent who has dealt with the the dreadful reality of addiction and kids. I am. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, sir. I, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, Steve, tell us a bit about uh, about about your about your son, about Nick. I mean, I read the half of the page that I have in front of me, but tell us about tell us about the the young man he was. You know, uh, just a, a really good kid. Uh, I mean, you pretty much said it there in, in the words that you just spoke. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing is uh, after Nick passed, it was, we had parents coming to the door, and uh, you know, one child where he was uh, in a wheelchair and uh, would get teased at school, and the parents took the time to come by and tell us how Nick would stick up for him, and another kid I think uh, you know was was autistic, and that they, the parents came to the door and told us. How Nick uh, and Nick stuck up for them, and Nick wasn't a, was a, was a very small kid compared to the rest of the people. But uh, you know, he, he had a, a, a big heart, and 
and you know he, he wasn't scared of anything. So uh, so anyways, that's I think when I think back, those that's probably you know what I'm very very proud of. How long had Nick been living with uh, with a, a problem with drugs or an addiction to drugs, and and when did it first manifest itself to you? When were you first aware? I think it was about three years uh, before he passed, and and that's really how I got introduced to Lisa McLeod was when we had to deal with uh, you know finding out your your son has done cocaine for for the weekend and uh, tells you that in the morning. So first thing you do is uh, you know you get in the car, we're going to go to the doctor and try to get some help. Go to the family doctor. The doctor said, well, it's just a bit of cocaine, not not too big a deal. He'll get over it. Uh, I knew better than that. So. We went to the children's hospital, got back in the car, went to children's hospital. They said, uh, you know, we don't deal with uh, with uh, with kids with drug problems. You're going to have to go to the Royal Ottawa Hospital. So got back in the car, went to the Royal Ottawa. They said, well, we don't deal with kids under 16 years old. Uh, you're going to have to call Dave Smith, which is a uh, treatment center here in Ottawa. So I, I called them and they said, uh, uh, thank you for calling. You're going to have to talk uh, you know, call intake, leave a message. They'll call you within 24 hours, and then uh, we'll see you within three months. Oh. Uh, so I said, well, that doesn't work. What can I do? They suggested go to Rito Wood, another treatment center where I could walk right in. So got in the car again, got, took my son, went there, talked to the receptionist. She gave me a card. She said, uh, go to, um, she said, call intake. We'll call you within 24 hours, and hopefully we can see you within three to four months. And I'm like, well, that's not good enough. So got back in the car, drove out to the West End where we live, went to our MP, uh, 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 Pierre Pelvier at the time, federal. Uh, so he was federal and literally walked right into his office with my son, told him what had happened. He told me, well, that's not a federal problem. It's a provincial problem. Uh, so, well, thanks a lot. Uh, wow. And then, uh, got back in the car, drove to Lisa McLeod's office. And she said, yeah, no problem. I can help you with this. I'm sorry to hear your story. And, uh, have a seat, and she came back 45 minutes later and said, Steve, I'm very sorry, but I can't find any help for you. So that was kind of my first introduction to, to Lisa. So all the doors closed? Oh, unbelievable. And you know what? I'm, I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm self-employed. I can, you know, I can, fortunately for me, I can take that day, but if I'm a single mom yeah. and I have that problem with my child, yeah. what do I do? You know, it's game over. It's awful. But well, it is awful because there must be so many children and an increasing number of children who are dealing with drug addiction, their parents find out. The first thing the parent wants to do is to, is to get help. So exactly. what the, where do you go for the help? You went, go to all the places that you went, and in your case, and I would imagine then, um, by extension, in all other cases, the doors are firmly closed in your face. And it's, sorry, can't help you, bye. Well, I think this is where maybe Sean would step in because I dealt with this seven years ago. I think the problem is worse today, and the, the the solution doesn't seem to be any different. And that's how I was introduced to Sean. So Sean's going through this right now. So maybe I'll pass it off to him, and he can. Uh, yeah. Hey, Sean. Yeah, well, that's it. basically it's. Uh, you know, I wrote an email in somewhere. The I guess in the social media world went viral about the struggles our family is having with getting help for our daughter, and and that led to the formation of We the Parents, and that's when I first met Steve, and he reached out to me because he had gone through this and then saw his uh, son pass away and, and then realized still nothing has improved. As a matter of fact, it's getting worse. And as you said, everything's getting worse and worse. And the opioids have come on the scene. And uh, now in, in our neighborhood here in Canada, we had three teenagers die in a matter of a few months last winter. And we're, there's still very little help for us. 
So, so the, S- Steve, your experience was seven years ago yeah. w- with the hospitals. And, and Sean, your experience is, is right now, and nothing's changed. Nothing. Nothing. No, not at all. Nothing. As a matter of fact, and the drugs fact, are worse. The drugs and the drugs are worse. As a matter of fact, I've uh, had lots of me. I've met with Dr. Hoskins, uh, um, the Federal Minister of Health at the time, Jane Philpott. I put a strong light on the fact that, like in the city of Ottawa, there's not even a, a withdrawal or detox bed for people that are 16 years of age and under, and still eight months later, there's nothing. The only thing uh, appears, like in our city, that they're ready, willing to do is more pop-up injection sites and uh, no treatment, no help for the for those that are struggling that want to get on the uh, path to recovery. Well, exactly. The pop-up injection sites are not what you want. No, no. But uh, that seems to be where all the dollars are going. It's uh, yeah. whether it's, and you know, and, and whether it's for people in the case that you talk about where people, uh, now the doctors are getting nervous and they're cutting off prescriptions. And as Steve and I, a uh, couple of last, the week before last, we spent the week doing health fairs at uh, federal prisons in uh, in Ontario and talking to people in there. We talked to one young man. He was 32 years old. He goes, you know, as, as a 28 years old, I had no criminal record. He says, they, uh, he says I'm a floor installer. Uh, I got I injured my knee at an operation. They gave me Percocets and then Oxy for the pain in my knee, and then they cut me off. He says, now I'm in here for possession of heroin yeah. for two That's, years. And, and, you know, that is happening to people more and more because they've been prescribed their medications. In the cases we talk about, it's generally opioids. Yeah. And they and it brought their quality of life back to where they could actually live their lives and they could do the things that they wanted to do and needed to do in order to function and be yeah. part of a family and have a job. And then suddenly, and I mean suddenly, they're cut off because doctors are so afraid of their medical colleges and of the politicians. So now the doctors are not prescribing any longer, and these people are going through through living hell. We've had some of them on the air, and it's terrible to hear. And, and you know, where are the solutions? Where's the where's the caring? Where's the input? Where's the money? We put $100 billion a year into our health care system. Why does a 76-year-old man who's a former military member and a former police officer have to send me emails that he's in desperate straits because his doctor has said, I'm not giving you anything. Yeah, well, I, 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 I'm, I'm living it with my mother. I mean, she uh, she hurt her back, oh boy, probably about nine years ago, seven years ago, uh, prescribed uh, Oxycontin. And I remember going into her cupboard one day and looking at all these pill bottles. She had been over-prescribed. There was over a 1,000 uh, Oxycontins in there that she had been over-prescribed. Um, you know, and uh, anyway, she's ended up turned into an addict. But I know right now her doctors cut her off, and I'm scared because yeah. he's given her no alternative, not talking about any kind of treatment. Um, and the alternative is, is kind of street drugs, and they're laced with fentanyl. Yeah. And you know, this is going to be the next wave. This is going to be a major problem. It for is. Our country. It's, yeah. There's no question about they, that. They, basically, the medical system and the pharmacy, pharmaceutical industry have hooked whether it be 76-year-old people or my 17-year-old daughter on opioids, and then are giving us no help. On Turning their backs. On getting those people into treatment or, reco- or to, uh, into recovery. And, I, you uh, know, doctor, doctors I want to talk to on the air, yeah. they, they say, well, yeah, uh, no, I don't think so. They, yeah. they want to, but they, they won't and, mm-hmm. uh, because they're afraid. They're yep. afraid that they're going to be on the radar. So instead of uh, instead of putting programs in place that will actually provide assistance, provide help, there's nothing there, but there's accusation and blame. 
and deflection. And there are more people suffering and more kids are dying. Yep. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I'd like you to uh, just go to nixlaw.ca, nixlaw.ca, and support the effort. It doesn't matter whether you have a child or grandchild. Uh, just support the effort. If you have kids, you'll particularly want to get behind this because it matters. And the support is not there on over a seven-year period from when um, Steve Cody first went looking for help, and this was in the Ottawa area for his son, Nick, to today, and Sean O'Leary with his uh, daughter dealing with uh, addiction issues, still can't find the help that they require. But uh, everybody's passing the buck, and everybody's deflecting, and everybody's blaming somebody else in the political arena and the medical arenas. Whatever happened to looking after people? Whatever happened to that? Um, Sean, what do you... What are the objectives of WeTheParents.ca? Because we'll have, we have listeners across Canada. Many of them may well be dealing with uh, addiction with their own kids. If they, if they get online, what, are they, what, what can you do for them, and what can they do for you? Well, we've started, uh, we're actually introducing a pilot program in West Ottawa area starting this Friday. We just had a meeting about a Thursday to try and, we're working with other parents to basically try to get our kids. We've started smart recovery meetings for them. And that's part of the program because uh, right now the government's letting us down. They have absolutely nothing. And uh, um, as you said earlier, whether this was Steve started seven years ago and it's continuing. And, you know, I mean, I know in Toronto also you've had many young people die from from overdosing on these drugs. The drugs have gotten much stronger. Um, There's the introduction of fentanyl, which is now placed in all the drugs, be it cocaine or heroin or ecstasy that's being used everywhere and it's uh, unfortunately it's killing many of our kids and, and you said it uh, the government's deflecting i've uh, tried dealing with ottawa public health they all they're doing in ottawa is uh, more and more injection sites it's uh, it's like it's like it's uh, the least ex- least expensive means for the government to mm-hmm. uh try to cover their tracks by keeping as many people as alive as possible but it's uh, uh i mean uh, you can't have uh, injection sites without offering treatment. And uh, right now in the city of Ottawa, that's all we're doing is offering injection sites. Uh, there was a guy, Dr. Mark Tindall, in 2013. He was head of infectious disease at the University of Ottawa. And when these injection sites, safe injection sites, were first starting, he was one of the first proponents. And he even he's quoted as saying, you can't have a safe injection site without offering treatment. They go hand in hand. And I know in our city, and, I'm, and I know it's actually same in Toronto and many places across Canada. Um, they're starting to, to get a grip out on it out west, but uh, it doesn't go hand in hand. They just do injection and for treatment. Well, the, the services available to our children are few and far between. I couldn't even imagine for some of the people you're dealing with and the senior citizens in our country that have been hooked on opioids and have now been cut off their prescriptions. I have no idea helps out there for them, and I imagine it's very, very little. Well, the people uh, who, who require these uh, medications yeah. to return some quality of life, and it's worked for them, and it's allowed them to live, and now they're being cut off. And then you have the, uh, for example, the editor of the, uh, of the guidelines, uh, Professor Jason Busa, on this program saying, well, you know, you don't cut people off, you just 
taper them with the agreement of the patient. And they have other doctors saying that's the way it should be done. But then actual on-the-scene frontline doctors are, are, are scared and they're saying, no, we're afraid we're going to lose our licenses. It's, it, it is an absolute mess. Steve, you were going to say something. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I just when I was listening to you, Sean, I was thinking about uh, last week. You were telling me about uh, a mom, I think, gave you a syringe. The son had done heroin and uh, Sean brought it down to the injection site to see if you could have it tested for fentanyl. And they wouldn't give you a test strip or something, Sean? Because no, it's like they so far they don't even like the fact that I've been asking for assistance for us to run some uh, recovery meetings and stuff for the kids. That uh, I went down there and I knew they have uh, these fentanyl test strips, you get test drugs to see if they contain fentanyl, and uh, they wouldn't even give me one. <laughs> it's like, and yet our city is financing them, but the two of I think it was the one on Sandy Hill at $1.5 million a year to uh, help people inject drugs. And, they, and uh, I offered to even pay for it. It's a 3 or $4 little thing that just has for fentanyl. And uh, it's just uh, the world's getting to be a silly place. Uh, and you said earlier about letting us down. I mean, I was talking to uh, a federal minister earlier, and I said, you know, I grew up in, I'm in my early 50s. I have three kids. I grew up in Ottawa. And I've been told my whole life that Canada's is one of the best countries in the world, if not the best country in the world to live in. And Ottawa, I believe, is one of the best cities in the best country. And I, I, knew, I always knew that the government, they always took us for a little bit of cash on the taxes and worked around and they spent their money and did this stuff. But I always really, really believe that what, if you entered a crisis, that your child's life was unrest, that our government would be there for us. And sadly, I found out they're not. And it's made me actually very disappointed in Canada yeah. as a whole. I did not think that my country. I've always believed. Yeah, that. guys, I'm gonna I'm gonna get in touch with you during the week, yeah. and we're going to follow up with you, okay? Because right. I, we have an ongoing effort here, so I think there's a great opportunity to combine efforts and put yeah, pressure absolutely. on where pressure needs to be put on. So uh, it's uh, nixlaw.ca and wetheparents.ca as well. Steve, Sean, thank you so much. Thank uh, so you. sorry for everything that you're experiencing, the suffering that you're, you're going through and the lack of help that you're receiving. But we'll be in touch with you over the next couple of days. Thank you for shining the light. Okay, guys. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.